this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. I'd like to welcome today's guests to the call, Irene Morgan, Shanae Kelts, and Debbie David. We're going to be talking about the predicaments we found ourselves in as a coalition over the past few years in striving to work with the justice system to bring health, vitality, and public safety to the market. But today, I want to first introduce each one of them and have them talk about the issues that are dear to their heart that we're going to be covering on the I Change Justice podcast over the next few weeks. Irene, do you want to start with the issues that are your expertise? Yes, thank you, Joy. I'm very excited about these podcasts. I've been doing some uh, delving into my records, and I'm astounded at what we've done. But what I've realized is that mentoring and court navigation and many of the programs and that we have actually developed to be able to help folks um, is so important in prevention and, and the reform of the justice system. And that's, I'm very excited about all of this coming forward. Yeah, you've been a trailblazer since 2006, and you've worked really hard as we've developed from a, something that is focused just on reentry to truly working on many other levels. So I'm very proud to have you on the call. Shanae, you came on um, around 2010. What's your expertise that you're going to be ta- speaking to? Hi, thanks, Joy. Yes, my expertise, I would say, would be being a person who's been through the system myself and then uh, outside the system working with clients who are going through the system, trying to navigate how to build relationships with the people working in the justice system, i.e. the prosecutors, public defenders, attorneys, even just working with uh, the clerical folks, the administrative folks in the criminal justice system, I have found it to be very challenging. I would assume that the overloaded cases that these folks have, that they would be more welcoming to programs, outside programs, being of assistance. However, that's not the case. And so my passion lies within creating those relationships uh, with us and them so that we can best serve our clients and our community. I don't think that people realize that the criminal justice system plays a huge role in our entire community's well-being and having a lack of communication is a really bad example of, of work ethic, I believe. Absolutely, Shanae. We welcome you so much aboard, aboard the advocacy side of our coalition, we've been working with you more as a client level and to have you come in to really help us. Your skill and your knowledge having been through the system in different ways for different reasons over the past 10 years when when Irene first started working with you is quite an asset stepping forward and it's really going to help the public understand 
the sizable difference between what we think is going on in the system, what's actually been going on in the system, and what the potential is for us to do with the system as expertise meets expertise, and we start to take down the veils of silence that actually shut a lot of people out of the system. So, um, thank you and welcome aboard. Debbie, what is it that your passion is moving into the future? Thank you, Joy. Thank you for hosting this program. I'm so delighted to be here with Shanae and you and Irene. And I, my area of interest and passion is broad, but comes down to adverse childhood experiences, um, which reflects intergenerational trauma and multiple levels of traumatic experiences within family systems, but also at the hands possibly of, of schools, et cetera. Um, I have children with developmental disabilities, so there's an area that I would like to bring awareness to the general public about how many people are impacted negatively by our criminal justice system that have intellectual disabilities. So that and how we can build resilience as individuals, the, the coursework that's available, um, to continue to grow and, and strengthen our communities. And lastly, the um, how we can in our in our individual lives as we encounter each other in community help to maintain more of a connection with one another and to employ de-escalation techniques if we encounter situations uh, where, where there's tension and tension has has been on the rise. The pandemic has contributed to that and just the struggle for most people to maintain their, their daily business activities. Uh, the, the pandemic has contributed to that, but also public health and safety um, not being adequately, the needs being adequately met there that, that contributes to, to tension. So thank you, Joy. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. One of the things that I've paid attention to over the last couple of years, as almost everyone has been somewhat silenced in the public domain, being able to speak out while we've been dealing with COVID, we haven't been able to travel around as much. We haven't been able to testify at conferences or, or meetings or public hearings. A lot of the public hearings actually have been, or public meetings have been curtailed over the bullying issues and the fear of police abuse and the fear of, you know, civil rights violations and all this stuff that's gone on politically has been affecting us locally in the streets, especially since uh, the January 28th situation where the city was closed down, downtown Bellingham was city was closed down while the uh, police did a homeless camp sweep in downtown Bellingham. And that created pretty profound, what I'm calling complex post-traumatic stress disorder amongst the population. And I'm talking about the entire Whatcom County population. We experienced the first time in my history of having our downtown, right? The civic center of our downtown locked down because of fear of police violence, fear of homelessness, fear, just fear, like so much. Uh, in the aftermath of some of the election and constitutional law issues that have been going on across the nation. So 
all those things have affected us and our coalition over the last year and a half has spent time reflecting back on what have we learned from working with people who have come out of the prison system, doing study into what happens to them with trauma, doing study after the Vera Institute of Justice did a report for Whatcom County about how we could fix the justice system and meeting resistance at the different levels of our court systems, prosecution systems, public defender systems, the sheriff's issues around the jail, all of these things have created civic distress. And I'm calling it a civic collision that happened in January 28th of 2021, when all these elements like came together and they boiled over. And subsequent to that, we've had enormous issues with people speaking out in outrage and it becomes bullying, bullying of the homeless. It becomes bullying of the officials. It becomes bullying of the uh, lawmakers. And this is boiling up. Uh, so de-escalation is going to be an uh, important thing. Learning how to do case interception and intervention is going to be important. Learning how to do prevention and early childhood education and all of these matters are going to be coming up and they'll all be coming forward here on your I Change Justice podcast. We'll do it in stages as we start reforming and rebranding, if you will, who we have been as the Restorative Community Coalition. We're doing all that we've done for the past 15 years since 2006 when the coalition was founded. But over the next a few years, and certainly in the next six months, we're going to be talking about how we do do the work of reclaiming lives and how we are, will be helping to reform the justice system over the coming months. So let's start with you, Irene, if we can go back to 2006 when you first started the coalition and where was your focus and how long did it take for you to change from just focusing on the people who were going through the system to realizing that the system was working for the system, not so much for the people. And it wasn't even working so well for the taxpayers. What happened in that first couple of years there? I realized early on, it, it was the second year, somewhere probably within 15 months or so after we started in 2006, that the education of the public was the most important thing. I would talk about the things that I had learned, and I would say there wasn't one in 200 that was interested in what I was saying. And, and I, I finally, re I, it really perplexed me, and what I realized was they didn't know they should be interested. There was no reason for them, from their view, to even be concerned about the people that we had put away that deserved to be there because they were they were not safe to be in our in our communities and when i finally um was working on the id which was not that much later i i remember we had just been to um to some site some kind of a an event and there were a group of people that I had been working with from many of the nonprofits in the community. And uh, I mentioned the, the ID and one woman said something and she was very prominent in this one large nonprofit that 
helped many, many aspects of our community. And she made a comment, and I says, you know, I, this, this person has been released from prison. They have paid their debt to society. They are a free citizen. And they're, they are identified with this offender badge. They are a free citizen. How does that work? How are you supposed to get a job? How are you supposed to, to find a place to live? And she just looked at me and she blinked. And I'm thinking, come on. Well, I didn't realize at the time. This had never crossed her mind before. And she was trying to find a place to, to house it in her brain. At least that was my perception after I thought about it a while. And so it, uh, I had already known that this public education was so important, but I didn't realize the depth and the breadth of it. It is everywhere. People, you know, and I've been told many times, and I probably am repeating myself, Irene, why are you spending so much time? Leave them alone. They're doing a good job. And it's like, ah, where do I go with this? Who's going to listen? How is this going to be? How is this going to be public conversation number one? Because that it affects all of us. As Shanae was saying earlier, there's no one that walks the streets of our community that are not affected by what is going on in our community, guised in thinking it's a better it's better for all of us. And the system, everyone that I've worked with and had conversations with, regardless of where they are in the community, know the system is broken. They know it. They, sp- they speak it. But they don't know what to do about it. And what and, excites and me is... Wanna, and what you're saying, I think, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's important when you, we talk about this that we understand that we are conditioned, we're preconditioned how to think about the criminal justice system. We're preconditioned barriers in our mind that say these people are criminals. They belong over here. I don't associate with criminals because you know what? I'm a good person and, and you're judged by the company you keep. So let's not even talk about that. It's not dinner table conversation. It's not public conversation. No one wants to be on the side of trying to help the bad guys. So these preconditioned beliefs create these structures in our brain that say, I don't want to talk about it. And so that's what you're speaking to, Irene. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, a couple of things come to mind, a couple of experiences I had. Uh, and if it is dinnertime conversation, it's about how how awful these people are and, and, and how they have affected a particular a group or a family member or something. And, and the question I always ask, and this, this may stretch some of you, is the perpetrator, I condone nothing that happens. I, I absolutely believe that we all should be law-abiding. So I condone none of the actions of these folks, but I want to know what circumstances in their life, and De- Debbie spoke of the ACEs study earlier, Adverse Childhood Experiences, what happened to that person? in their life that caused them to do the action that put them in front of the courts in the first place. That's where I go. I'm not excusing anybody's um, actions, but I want to know what caused them to do that. And from, from what we've heard from Shanae and how she was 
um, how she came into the, the world and, and her experiences in the first five years of her life, if you don't know how to do it different, you can't do it, do it differently without an awareness that there's something wrong. And one of, the, one of the experiences I had that comes to mind, it just blows my mind, is I was in a group of, of people about my age, and something, I, I probably brought up this, the subject of, of reentry and mass incarceration, and the one woman says, well, she says, all you have to do is go on the internet and watch this one video, and she says, uh, we've di- they, they say that the, all of the seniors need to trade places with those in prison because they'll have free meals, they'll have beds, they'll have TV, they'll have the, the ball games, anything they wanna, want to participate in, or I'll be right there in the jail. And then we'll put the, the prisoners on the ship where they'll be, where they can't get off so that they can be punished the way they deserve to be punished. And I, I was so dumbstruck. I could not believe that that came from people that I knew personally and, and were so terribly uninformed. So it didn't take me long to not even interact with those folks because they couldn't hear me. Anyhow. Yeah. So, Shanae, how do you respond to that, having been a person within the system and you've run into these silos or this this fragmented kind of boxed in thinking? How do you how do you talk about that? Um, well, thanks, Joy. Thanks, Irene, so much for all the work that you do. I I just feel like my experiences have been blessed compared to most people who come out of prison. I've had opportunities with people who are more open-minded. However, I have had a couple of jobs be terminated due to my background check. And this is after I'd already been working for a few weeks uh, with clients and things. So it is a matter of perception. Um, You know, Irene touched on, you know, the person's already done their time. They've paid their dues. It's a conditioned way of thinking, just like what you said as well. And I just keep running into that in all kinds of arenas. I mean, even at church groups, people who claim to be so open and loving and unconditional and all these things have their preconceived ideas of how to treat people who've been through the criminal system. And most people on the flip side, most people I talk to say, I just never got caught. I mean, there's plenty of people who work in the criminal justice system who just never got caught. And the more we can normalize the conversations around it, the easier it is going to be for us to all help each other. I I feel like I have a voice that is more courageous than most to have conversations with people who are on the other side of the fence who may have never gotten in trouble or or anything like that. But it, it is a difficult task to do. And Luckily, in the most recent few years, there's been uprisings of organizations similar to ours in different communities who are built out of people just like me who've been incarcerated much longer than I was even for much more serious crimes who are now speaking up and speaking out and saying, hey, I did my time. I learned from my mistakes. I shouldn't be scrutinized or punished for the rest of my life. After I've 
healed those internal struggles that kept me from seeing, you know, the light side of life instead of wrapped up in the darkness. And I just feel like our efforts are unnoticed at times by people who claim to be part of a healthy, healthy, helping system. And so this podcast is going to be able to give a platform to for people who may not have ever spoken up, or maybe they have questions about how, how we got where we are and, and change different perspectives. That's my hope. One of the things that I noticed over the last 10 years of my 11 years of my working with the system is how calcified we can become in our beliefs. I remember sitting in one of the incarceration prevention reduction task force meetings and listening to the judges and the people presume that everybody who's going into the justice system is mentally ill. It's just a condition and they're just going to have to deal with it. And they were, you know, it was just this presumption that people, all of them coming in, they were already guilty in their minds or they wouldn't have been arrested, that their job was simply to process them through the court system and process them through uh, the paperwork because they needed to get on medical drugs or they needed to be incarcerated or they needed to go get this or that. It's like there was a numbness that happened within the court and justice system that really and, got Andrew up. And yes. what I'd like to add to that is, and it was for public safety. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that they were doing things for the public's, for public safety wasn't actually, there was like this predicament of communication between for public safety, which was a department. Public safety is actually a department within Whatcom County government. We build public safety buildings. We have public safety employees. We pay, we buy guns, we buy weapons, all for public safety services. So this is public safety in that verb, in that situation is like a noun. But the thing that us taxpayers are paying for, through the teeth, I might say, and often in opposition to our choice, like we voted down the jail taxes twice because we didn't want to buy more public safety buildings. What people have been asking for for the past 10, 15 years is public safety services. So the public's safety needs are met. The public safety needs are the human needs that we need to be able to help people who have been traumatized, people who have been injured in accidents, people who have made mistakes, people who are dealing with, you know, disaster, or they're dealing with a, a public incident or some kind of an incident that put them in the center of the civic systems where they're dealing with CPS or they're dealing with the justice system or they're dealing with probation or they're dealing with the sheriff's office. So these are systems, again, they're structures that manage people. Public safety services are the buildings we buy and the equipment we buy to manage people. And dealing with the human public safety needs is a completely different thing. And I think, Debbie, I'd like you to speak about that because you Wait. understand what? Really quickly, really quickly, I just want to say, if it's a public safety issue, where was public safety when I was being abused as a child? Where was the criminal justice system then? You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Where was it when my dad was locked up in prison and I had no relationship with him or my mom was absent and she was an alcoholic and had mental health issues and there was no services for her or, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And, and there's millions of people like me in our country who are sitting in prison who have the same background or even worse. And then they right. get out and they wonder why they did a certain thing or, how, you know, right from wrong. Well, yeah, we know right from wrong, but our emotional self and our logical self are not connected due to trauma and abuse and crisis. So helping to bridge the gap between the idea, you know, it's like, it's like we adults that are listening to this radio show, we're free and we're listening to this radio show and we're going, oh, we put money into this public safety bin to take care of all those people out there that are, that are, you know, homeless or unable to care for themselves. Well, where did the unable to care for themselves start? And where is prevention? Where is mm -hmm. early intervention? Where is the interception services in our community? We talk about it in the, like in the, in the administration, people will always talk about, oh, we have that service, but relative to the demand for the human emotional needs, like we, we boiled over in that category last year, and we're going to boil over again this year. Because we've got people, because of COVID, because of trauma, people are hurting. And so where do you go with that, Debbie? I, I'm sure that you've got another way of talking about it that would be more illuminative than I've been. Can you speak? Well, what you've said is, is right on, though, Joy. Um, and what's interesting is statistically, the number of reported um, child abuse cases went down when kids weren't in school because there wasn't that. There weren't the teachers seeing the signs. Uh, the, ch the kids, when they were doing the remote learning, um, they were at home. And a lot of them weren't even connected through computer because a lot of homes don't have Internet access and schools don't have the funds to do the, um, you know, send a little box that connects them to Wi-Fi home with every student. If you look at it from a global perspective, if a child or a family doesn't have the ability to meet their basic needs, a safe, warm uh, house and, and stable family, that's, that's the root. The root of public safety is really in public health and education. And we're failing on multiple, multiple levels here to recognize where we can intercept and do an intervention or support. And I don't agree with taking children from their families. What I do, if there's abuse situation, what I do agree with is supporting the entire family at whatever level is needed in order for all individuals to heal, to recover, to become informed and aware um, what a healthy relationship with their child is. Um, it, so you're it, talking. So you're talking about rehabilitation. You're talking about interceptions. You're talking about relearning how to be healthy in relationship with your child, with the other people in the community, so that abuse is cut off at the pass, if you will. It's stopped as early in the family relationship as possible, but it's about relearning how to be how to deal with complex issues. Absolutely. And what I have recently come to be aware of 
was uh, through firsthand experience was a family court system and how much effort it took for in my daughter's individual case for the father to be ordered to have parenting classes. He's skirted through his um, quite witty uh, answering questions during assessment for alcoholism for treatment. He's skirted that uh, assessment. And even though he has pretty serious uh, behavior issues when he's drinking, and that was the cause of the family separation, but it took 11 months of my daughter representing herself because she wasn't able to hire an attorney uh, status with military that are about to deploy. No one wants to take your case if your um, significant other is is military and, and due to deploy the she couldn't find an attorney. That was the routine reason that she was told they wouldn't take her case because it's a whole different category that that person, that military person is in. But it took my daughter 11 months of fighting, of, of documenting, of, of writing declarations, of reaching out to her support people from uh, her children's therapists or children's special ed teachers, et cetera, saying, this is happening, this is happening. My child can't tell me what they're experiencing because they can't communicate verbally, but their behavior is showing this. And finally, after 11 months, he's ordered to do parenting classes. So, so let me be clear about this because a lot of people will say you shouldn't be talking about that because it's a family, you know, you're, you know, it's public, um, what is it, privacy kind of stuff. But the fact is all of these issues that you're talking about are a matter of public record in the court system. And so what you're saying is that while on the defense side of the court systems, they need all these documents to be able to justify all of their actions in order to fulfill public safety rules and regulations, some of those rules and regulations and some of those systems are actually become counterproductive to the child. And they become counterproductive to the actual administration of justice. And if we had systems that were actually focused on the welfare of the child and the welfare of the parents as a whole system, then we have a different conversation. Is that that's to interpret? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And what's interesting is this is uh, public record, except for if the, the children's names would be redacted because, you know, sure. they're juveniles. But the, what occurs um, in these court cases is a matter of public record. Um, and they're considered, they're obviously not criminal cases unless sure. um, there is legal basis to be, to be charged. What's interesting is what uh, Child Protective Services looks at or what flags them to do an investigation for possible child abuse the bar is really, really high for abuse and neglect in, in terms of maybe prosecuting or charging a parent for abuse. And I just, it's not that my desire is to have the parent charged or prosecuted. My desire is to be at a level of awareness in our systems so that support happens. What good is it going to do the entire family to just lock away one of the parents. What they need is the therapies, the, the healing, the 
the relearning, as you referenced earlier, uh, a way to heal and reconnect in a healthy way to break, and in, in my family's case particular, it is an intergenerational uh, situation. My, my former son-in-law's mother was a se severe alcoholic and, and she passed early because of her alcohol untreated. I shouldn't say untreated. She was in rehab more than a dozen times. So whatever her particular need was didn't get met and addressed within whatever uh, treatment she received. So we have to look at why so much isn't working, how we can do better for all of us. And I, part of it is not putting the funds in the right place. We need to have more funds in prevention and intervention and less funds on this other end where a huge part of our population is in prison or in jail. What, so what, what is that doing for us? So instead of focusing the, the social conversation about public safety on the police, what you're actually saying, instead of defund the police, it's refund the public the services for the public's safety. Absolutely. So that then demand for police to have to show up is reduced. It's about refunding or just funding at all prevention services and social social wealth not social welfare i don't like that word because it came up in my life and people were very demeaning of welfare but well means the welfare which is the welfare of somebody's health so there's really this interesting dichotomy of words of language of of impressions of decades and generations of teaching and training about police and criminal justice. It's like we have to unravel all those words in the 21st century now because the world is changing really fast and the needs of society today to handle stress in the aftermath of COVID, in the aftermath of mass incarceration, we're incarcerating around, I think I figured out it was 14 to 16 million people a year between jails and prisons and probation, people under investigation and surveillance, 16.6 .6 million, actually. Oh that was 2017. That's a lot of people. And when you think about those people all have families and the ripple effect of the spouses and the moms and dads and the family members above the person who's in, who came in generationally before them, and then all their children and all their relationships and all the teachers and all the people working in the churches trying to pick up the pieces of broken families. It's not a one size fits all, but we must diagram the complexity of the problems, start taking it apart, start rebuilding how we think about justice and how we think about the prison industrial complex and how we can reform our justice system. So we're about out of time. Do any of the three of you have something specific else that you want to talk about before we close the call? I'd like to say how grateful I am that this has all come together. I've spent most of my life not being able to speak mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'm, I'm this person that's way out here in left field and people just don't, don't understand mostly what I'm speaking about. And, and I'm the only, I have felt like I'm the only one that cares. And I now have found a group of people 
that I can actually pour my heart out to and and be able to be understood. I I am just euphoric. So I am so grateful for the powers that be that brought this together. And Joy, kudos to you for for getting this technology. I uh, there's no way it would happen if it were up to me. So thank you, thank you. Twenty first century, twenty first century tech is something to deal with. Hey, Shanae, um, last comments. Yeah, sure. I would just like to say for anyone listening, if you listen to this and you find yourself being moved in any kind of way to use your talents, your profession in any way to help our organization grow and to collaborate, it would be the most brave thing you've ever done. And if you want to be known as being a trailblazer, if you want to be known for being strong, for being courageous, bring your professional or your personal values to our organization, please contact us. We are waiting and wanting these collaborations and and communications to start happening. This is a global opportunity. This is not something that's just for Whatcom County. We are seeking global alliances. And I tell people this all the time. You know, for me, I had to learn that it takes a lot more strength for me to say, Everything I believed in up until now has been false. Now is the time to seek out the truth. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Irene and Joy and Debbie, for always believing in me and always reminding me how powerful I can be. And I just am full of gratitude for this opportunity and for the future. Thank you so much, Shanae. Thank you, Irene. Thank you, Debbie. We are working into the future. We will have the I Change Justice podcast airing every week. We will be doing some educational trainings and PowerPoints and public meetings in the coming few months. Go to therestorativecommunity.org for more and listen for more podcasts coming up soon. Thank you so much for being on the call today. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.